Hey, that way everybody online can connect with us as well. Well, if you're joining us online, you should probably know that today is the first Sunday of the newly arrived fall season. What a spectacular day it is, right? And so it's hard to imagine that today we are finishing something that we began back when we were talking about summer's arrival back in the beginning of June. We have spent these past few months working our way through, phrase by phrase, the words of the Lord's Prayer. We have learned them. We have lived them. Uh, We've tried to encourage ourselves with the reminder that Jesus is not just teaching us how to pray, but is teaching us how to live. And we have imagined as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer that we're taking up residence in this big, beautiful abode, the the household of God, the Father's house. And, And we've allowed each passage, each section of the Lord's Prayer to take us into a different room. So we've prayed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Something holy and beautiful we've imagined being in the chapel. We've, we've prayed, give us this day our daily bread and imagine being under the provision of God in the great kitchen that's in that house. And, and room by room we've moved through. And today we get to the last phrase in the Lord's Prayer, which really is a plea for protection. Do you know the one? Lead us not into temptation, say it with me, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Is that really a necessary prayer? I mean, do we believe in evil things anymore? Would God really lead us into temptation? Hmm. These are kind of weighty questions for the first summer of the fall season, but, but, but let's spend a little bit of time. If you have your Bibles, and you're going to need a Bible or a device, because uh, we don't have all the same prompts on the screen as we do some weeks. But I want you to turn with me in the book of James, towards the end of the New Testament, the book of James, in chapter 1, in verse 13. This is an important little verse here as we begin this, uh, this sermon. James 1.13 says, when people are tempted, here's what they should not say. It's God who's tempting me. Why? Because evil cannot tempt God, and God himself does not tempt anyone. So if God's not tempting us, why pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation? Hmm. That's the, the kind of questions that keeps up keeps up theologians at night and wrestles with them. But I tell you who these questions don't really bother. A child. Uh, This prayer is a prayer written for a childlike heart. Remember how it starts? Our Father, Abba Father in heaven. This is a prayer for, for those who have already learned what it means to identify with God as Father, who've already prayed for today's provision, give us this day our daily bread, who've already prayed for yesterday, forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses. And now the child reaches out to God looking for this assurance that tomorrow is also in God's hands. Tomorrow. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And if it doesn't make a lot of sense, maybe just a simple illustration helps. Imagine a father and son walking down the road, and only it's not fall, it's now winter, and the first signs of winter's glare ice begin to appear. And you know how that gets kids excited, right? And so let's go, the hand goes bolting down the sidewalk, and before you know it, well, the the legs go up, the butt goes down, the tears start flowing, Dad comes along, helps the boy to his feet. 
boy apologizes, no, that I shouldn't have taken off, I know better than that, and says simply, keep me from falling again. Don't let me fall. And the father, I mean, what father isn't willing to comply? Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verse 23. I want you to listen to the father's response to a child reaching up saying, would you keep me from falling? Psalm 36, 23, the steps of the godly are directed by the Lord, and he delights in the detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. See, really, this is the heart of the prayer. It's the request of a child to their heavenly father. Why? Because we have slipped up in the past. We have fallen. We know that it's treacherous and we try and do it on our own. We're trying to avoid the pain of falling into temptation, of of becoming trapped in the grip of evil. And so we place our small hands in that one large hand of God and say, please, Abba, keep me from evil. Actually, you know, the... The translation is, is maybe even a, a little bit more pointed than that. That's how I learned the prayer. Did you learn it that way? Deliver us from evil? So you'd be, you'd be interested to know that probably the, the most direct way of rendering that uh, in, in our language is deliver us from the evil one. And, and maybe that feels like a small point of grammar, but... But you hear the difference between the reality of evil and the source of evil? The evil which surrounds us and evil which has a source, which is personified in, in this person. It's not inconsequential. And we make two really, I think, really critical errors whenever we come to talk about this subject, about, about evil or about the evil one. If you're joining us for the first time, I want you to know that we don't talk about this every Sunday. It's not that kind of a church, right? We, it's just, but, but you happen to arrive on the one Sunday all year long where we're going to talk about evil and the evil one. But here's the first mistake we make. We make a mistake by ignoring the subject completely, by relegating it to the realm of medieval fantasy. You know, this is, this is just ancient stuff. It's outdated notions. People didn't know what we know about the transmission of disease through viruses, about, about the problems of building our city on tectonic plates where, where earthquakes happen. We know why bad stuff happens in the world. We don't need this idea of evil. I want you to listen to one of my favorite writers. He died several years ago, a man named John Stott. He says, we need to rid our minds of this medieval caricature of Satan, dispensing with the horns and the hooves and the tail. And what we're left with is the biblical portrait of a spiritual being, highly intelligent, immensely powerful, and utterly unscrupulous. Jesus himself not only believed in his existence, but warned us of his power. He called him the prince of this world. In the same way, Paul called him the ruler of the kingdom and of the air. He therefore desires a kingdom and a throne. Under his command may be this army of malignant forces who are simply described in scripture as the powers of darkness. So if the first error is by by just ignoring it, relegating it to the realm of medieval fantasy, here's the second error. 
It's when we dwell on the subject incessantly. We don't talk about this every week, nor should we every week. You give the devil his due, but Satan thrives on attention. You, wanna, you don't want to give him too much. You know, sometimes you want to see a devil behind every doorknob. So walking between these two extremes, you know, believing the devil never exists at all and seeing him everywhere, watch, walking between the two extremes, what I thought we could do for a few minutes today is try and figure out what is the place of this, of, of evil and the evil one in the life of a faithful Jesus-following person? What place does, does Satan have in all of this? We've heard of this devil, right? I mean, we talk about him. The, the scriptures, they, they pull back the curtain a little bit, and they don't tell us a lot, but they tell us enough. They tell us that, 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 that really he... The devil was involved in the most foolish gamble in all of history. An angel who was not content just to be in the living presence of God, but desired to be in supremacy over God. Lucifer, not not content with giving God worship, wants to occupy God's throne. Whatever else may have changed through the epochs of history, that hasn't changed. He he is as self-centered now as he was then, as foolish now as he was then, and just as limited now as he was then. And that's important. Satan is a defeated foe. Whenever we talk about evil, we need to start by acknowledging that. Think about, uh, think about all of the ways in which Scripture reminds us, points to this reality that, that in spite of all of the powers at work here, Satan is still ultimately subjugated to God. Remember Abraham's wife? What a great story. Remember Abraham and Sarah? The promise was given. God promises her a child, but she remains childless year after year, decade after decade. And Satan is just kind of gleeful about this, thinking he's going to use this empty crib as a way of stirring up tension and and dissension in the marriage and doubt that Sarah would be like prima facie evidence. Here's right on the surface. You can't deny it. The evidence that you can't trust God, and you can't trust God's promises. But you know what happens in the end in the story. Just the opposite. And somehow the thought of this 90-year-old woman in the maternity ward has instructed millions and millions of people never to give up on God. What about Daniel? You remember Daniel's story? The sight of of one of Jerusalem's best young men being led off into captivity. That must have looked and felt like a victory for Satan. Hell's plan also, always to isolate those who are, who are faithful to God. And, and here in Daniel's life, it looked like it was, being, uh, it was being worked out all over again, but the plan boomerangs. And what Satan intended as captivity, God uses for royalty. Daniel takes up a position in the king's court, and the very man that Satan tried to silence spends his life speaking into the highest corridors of power about the reality of the living God. How about Paul? Boy, Satan had really hoped he got the best of Paul when he arranged for him to spend the latter part of his ministry in prison. If I can't slow him down, I'll grind him to a dead stop. We're going to silence his voice. And in silencing his pulpit, Satan unleashed Paul's pen. And from the jail cell, 
you get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written while in prison, all the source of inspiration and truth and guidance, not just for a few, but for tens of millions now for centuries. And you can just see, you can imagine Satan kicking the dirt, thinking, ah, I missed that one. If only I'd let him just walk around, not give him all this free time in jail to write that stuff. How about Peter? Another good example. Satan really tries to discredit Jesus by provoking Peter, one of his best-known followers, to turn his back on him and deny him. But the plan backfires. And rather than an example of just how far a person can fall, Peter will be forever remembered as the example of just how high God's grace can lift us up after we've fallen. I mean, Satan really comes across kind of like the Colonel Clink of the Bible. And I did that in the first service, and nobody knew what that reference is, so maybe it's time to modernize the reference. Hogan's Heroes, does anybody remember that? Back when we actually thought it might be comical to make a, 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 a TV sitcom about a World War II POW camp. But, but the reality here is that, that Clink was never in charge. He was never in charge, and he just came across looking foolish every time he tried to pretend to be in charge. Over and over again, the Bible makes it clear who really runs the universe. Satan may strut and he may prance, but God and God alone is sovereign. I was hoping there'd be an amen there. The devil is the servant of God. I don't know if that sounds as controversial to you. He doesn't want you to know it. He would like nothing more than for everybody to believe that he is unlimited in his power, that he has his own kingdom, that he's at work advancing his own cause with no adversity. Listen to what... um, This is a favorite writer of mine, another one, Erwin Lutzer, writes, he wrote a book about the subject called The Serpent of Paradise, and he says this, the devil is just as much God's servant in his rebellion as he was in his days of sweet obedience. We can't quote Luther too often. This devil is God's devil. Satan doing the bidding of God, seeking the permission of God. Does that strike you as strange? If it does, I promise you that Satan would rather you hear anything else today than what I'm about to say. He would much rather you be deceived into thinking him as some unlimited force of, of independent power in the universe. And he doesn't want you to want us to, to be able to, 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 to lean into and celebrate this truth that, that the power of God is like... It's like the great set of walls that surround the Father's house. This is the last great exploration of God's gift to his people. The great house of God is hemmed in by God's protection. Mighty walls that Satan cannot climb, that the devil cannot penetrate, and the reminder that he has no power except what God permits. 1 John 4, verse 4. Boy, this is a, this is a dog ear of the page, underline the text verse. 1 John 4, verse 4. The Spirit of God which is in you is greater than the devil in this world. The Spirit of God in you is greater than the devil who is in this world. And he would certainly rather you never learn 
to understand how, in fact, the work of God's great adversary can get caught up in the cause of Christ itself. How is it that God uses Satan to do the work of heaven? Well, I'm going I'm to give you three things. We're going to spend about two minutes on each of them, and they come in the form of an acronym. How is it that God uses Satan to do the work of his kingdom? He uses it to refine the faithful. Say that. Refine the faithful. He uses it to awaken the sleeping. Awaken the sleeping. And he uses it to teach the church. I'm going to let you chew on what the acronym is for just a couple of minutes. Refine the faithful. Hey, listen, we all have a little bit of the devil's disease. Even the meekest among us have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves from time to time. This was Paul's problem. I mean, the guy had the most incredible resume. Personal audience with Jesus, check. Participant in these marvelous heavenly visions, check. Apostle chosen by God, check, check. Author of, or co-author of scripture, check. He heals the sick, travels the world, pens some of history's most famous words. There are few people who have a resume like that. And maybe he knew it. And maybe he knew that there would be times in his life when he would just be caught in that, that terrible loop of patting his own back and, and, and puffing up his own head. And God, who loves Paul and hates false pride, protects him from himself. And he uses Satan to do it. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, because of all of these great things that we just talked about, these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me what? A thorn in my flesh. And we have speculated for years. I mean, what could the thorn be? Some people say, you know, he didn't see well. It was blindness. Somebody, he was a small man, uh, some sort of physical deformity, uh, arthritis. But, but let's not miss the focus. The focus is not so much on the thorn as it is why was the thorn being used and what was its source? So let me read the end of the verse. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Again, we're not told what it is, but we're told its origin. Could have been a pain. Could have been a person. Could have been a person who was a pain. <laughs> we don't know. But, but what we do know is this happens under God's control. Have a look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. said, Lord, will you take this from me? And he said to me, and you know these words, some of you, my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness. Satan and his forces, simply a tool in the hands of God to strengthen the heart of a servant, Ref, to, to refine the faithful. That's the first purpose, refine the faithful. Here's the second, to awaken the sleeping. Hundreds of years before Paul had his own battle with pride, there was another famous Jewish leader battling with, eagle, with ego, and, and this one lost. Saul, the first king of Israel, consumed by jealousy, Upstaged by, you remember who? By David, the youngest son of a shepherding family, like nobodies. David did everything better than Saul. He sang better. He fought better. He attracted better looking women. He killed the giants that Saul feared. But rather than celebrate all the ways that God had gifted David and all the ways that God was using David for the good of the whole nation, he just grows insane in his hostility. 
And in an apparent effort, what looks like an effort to sort of awaken Saul from this, this fog of jealousy, God enlists the help of his unwitting servant. 1 Samuel 18, verse 10. The very next day, an evil spirit rushed upon Saul. And listen, folks, there, there's a principle at work here. It's a solemn principle. I think it's a hard principle. Um, but I actually think it's somewhat undeniable. There are times, and you know this in your life and the lives of those around you, there are times when hearts grow so hard or when ears grow so dull that God hands us over to the consequences of our choices. If Saul wasn't going to drink from the cup of God's goodness, let him sip from the cup of Satan's fury. Let him be driven to despair so it might drive him back into the arms of God. Because as drastic as it may appear, I think sometimes God allows us to experience the consequences of our own sinful acts acts and choices, knowing how much those things are going to cause us pain, but realizing that sometimes pain, I wish it weren't this way, people, but sometimes pain is God's best tool to shape the lives of his people. C.S. Lewis used to say, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping and deaf world. But in saying all of this, I, I hope that I hope it's possible to say, because it's so important that we do, that there is enough evil in the world created by human beings and our choices that we don't have to indulge in any kind of folly that said, God did this stuff. God's out there somehow increasing the amount of evil in the world to, to use it as a solution in people's lives. No, no, no. Of all the doctrines of Christian faith, the reality, the presence of evil is, boy, that's the most demonstrably true, isn't it? And sometimes, sometimes God allows his people to endure the consequences of their own terrible choices. Karina and I awoke to some terrible news this week that a member of her family was found murdered at home. And uh, it was her boyfriend who took her life and then took his own. And uh, I know some of the family watch. And so to you, I, we don't need to invent reasons for evil in the world. We know why they exist. What we need is an answer. Uh, that answer comes in only one place. If God uses evil to awaken the sleeping, I think it's only because he has something greater in mind, a reality to which we need to be awakened, of beauty and purpose and eternity. To teach the church is the is the last way that evil is used to refine the faithful, to awaken the sleeping, to teach the church. There's this moment in the life of Peter. I think this is the best illustration of what this looks like. Jesus is speaking to Peter, Luke 22. He says, Simon, Peter's birth name, given name, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to test you 
to test all of you in the same way that a farmer sifts the wheat. And I've prayed for you that you would not lose your faith. Instead, that you would, through this, help your brothers be stronger. Help them come back to me. Notice again who's in control. Satan has a plan, but needs God's permission. Why? Well, Jesus was clear about this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Not to him, to me. The purpose of the test is to provide a testimony for the church. Jesus allowing Peter to experience trial so that he could encourage his brothers who were about to go through the most tumultuous decades of trial that the church had ever known. And maybe, maybe God is doing the same thing in your life or in mine. God knows the church needs living testimonies of the power of God. So your difficulty, your disease, your conflict, could God be using that to prepare your voice as a living testimony to speak to this generation? Last scripture for this morning, then we'll wrap up. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed beyond your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Remember, Satan cannot penetrate the walls of God's great house. Still finding it a lot to take in, this idea that Satan actually is a servant of God. Let me, let me give you the final example. A sinless Savior, covered in sin. The author of all life, life as we know it, life as, life as we long for it to be. The author of all life, now placed in a cave reserved for the dead. And Satan's victory must have felt certain. He had not just scored a victory, he had slam-dunked the MVP and left him lying on the floor. Maybe maybe we think the devil blew it with Peter or with Paul, but this time he did it right, and the whole world had seen it as Jesus was lowered to the earth and then placed in the belly of the earth. But then suddenly there was a light that began to emanate from inside the tomb and a rumbling from among the rocks. And Friday's tragedy becomes Sunday's savior. And Satan knew again that he'd been had, that he'd been a tool in the hands of a greater power, that all the time that he thought he was defeating heaven, he was helping heaven's cause. God wanted to prove power over sin and death. This is how he would do it. And guess who helped him to do it? (laughs) Jesus emerges as victor. Satan was left looking like, uh, well, you figure it out. Refine the faithful, awaken the sleeping, teach the church. Yeah. Let's pray for each other in this. God, we'll, we'll step from, from these walls back into our world and and all of its activities and choices, all of its opportunities and its temptations and its challenges. We'll, we'll step into a world that is replete with beauty, but also scarred and mired by evil. And because that's the world that we have created. 
God, we turn to you as its first creator. And we pray that you would be at work in the world and in us recreating what has fallen and protecting us as we're engaged in the work of your kingdom. In order to give voice to that, God, we want to pray these words that Jesus taught us. And and church, I'm going to invite you to pray the words of the Lord's Prayer and pray them as you learned them first in whatever language that was. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen